Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be getting up to speed on this month's South Australian state election. My guest today is Tom Richardson, who is a senior journalist focusing on South Australian state politics within Daly. Hello, Tom. G'day, Ben. How are you? Good, thanks. The current South Australian state Liberal government took power in 2018, ending 16 years of Labor rule with a bare Liberal majority. But four years later, that government's majority is in tatters, with the Liberal Party two seats short of a majority, with a number of ex-Liberal MPs now sitting on the crossbench. And the latest news poll has Labor in the lead with 53% of the two-party preferred vote. So, Tom, what's happened since 2018? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And in some ways, you could say a lot's happened, um, but in other ways, not very much at all. Obviously, the pandemic is is the big thing that has impacted. Um, I guess I'd probably make the point that the pandemic has, for the most part, been a positive for, for the Marshall Liberal government. So to see what might be behind this news poll result in particular, all the the current polling, and that the news poll is consistent with a, a poll that we published a week or so earlier, um, commissioned by the Australia Institute, um, which had Labor at fifty one to the Liberals forty nine. So the obviously the coronavirus pandemic kicked in in early twenty twenty. The government was elected in twenty eighteen. So the roots of where we are today might. You know, it might be worth looking at those first two years as well, because they didn't sort of rush into reform in the in the way of a sort of Campbell Newman type government. I think they were very wary of being a Campbell Newman type government, but perhaps not wary enough about not sort of uh, repeating the mistakes of of the the last Victorian Liberal government, um, the Napthone Value administrations, which in their own review sort of looked back and thought that they didn't do enough and didn't look um, like they were trying to get enough done after, and particularly for the the South Australian Liberals having been in opposition for 16 years, you know, it sort of took 12 months to get their feet under the desk and then spent the best part of their second year in office arguing amongst themselves and with their own constituency and with their own right faction about uh, a fairly obscure land tax issue that was meant to be a budget saving and ended up being so compromised that it was a budget spend by the end of the year and you know didn't give the impression that they were really uh, sort of rushing into putting their stamp on their first term and then of course the pandemic came along and that in a sense actually saved them initially because South Australia was was regarded for a very long time as being um, you know one of the better managed jurisdictions in terms of how it handled the coronavirus issue. Yeah, South Australia has handled it pretty well. Um, They haven't had as many outbreaks. They've tended to shut them down more quickly. Um, And is it is it just that people have moved on and that's no longer at at the forefront of people's mind when they think about the issues that matter to them, do you think? I think that's part of it. I think it's probably a bit of a complex response to to the whole thing. I mean, Stephen Marshall initially invoked the um, Emergency Management Act, which meant putting the, the police commissioner, Grant Stevens in charge of the pandemic response, along with you know taking advice from the chief public health officer, Nicola Spurrier. So he's really taken a bit of a back seat, be more of an MC sort of role to their running of the pandemic. And then the government took the decision um, to open the state borders on November the 23rd last year, in line with, with um, the national cabinet timeline. But, but then against health advice, didn't close them again once the, once the Omicron variant became a variant of concern. And that was um, 
that was sort of discovered via a, a sort of miscommunications where they'd actually flagged in, in a News Corp drop that, that they would close the borders again and then it didn't happen. So people are aware that there was that health advice to close borders. And then when we had really spiralling cases over and, and you know, people thrown into quarantine um, situations in the lead up to Christmas and New Year, um, I think there was a, a fair bit of residual anxiety and, and a bit of backlash, which really undid a lot of the um, pandemic management that Marshall was was getting a lot of accolades for. But the other thing is over the course of those two years, there have been a number of issues, and you touched on it earlier, with members of the, you know, factional divisions, basically, and members of the party um, leaving the Liberal Party to sit on the cross benches. Some of them are beyond Marshall's control in terms of um, Fraser Ellis in Narunga was was charged after an ICAC investigation over um, alleged misuse of parliamentary entitlements. But even in even saying that, it took the party a year to decide not to run him as a candidate, and um, and really they only pre-selected someone to run against him in the days leading up to the writs being issued. So, you know, there have been a few own goals, and there've been. You know, a lot of the divisions that are here in South Australia, we've tended to associate with the Liberal Party over the sort of 80s and 90s. And I guess maybe part of that has been a, a reminder that the, that there are really two parties within the South Australian Liberal Party and they don't seem to like each other very much. Well, there's a long history in South Australia, right, of um, uh, Karen and Olsen, I think. Dean Brown and, and John Olsen was the sort of... Uh, the archetypal That's right. yeah. spat, and that led on into Rob Karen um, stepping in. That's right. That's right. Eventually, after John Olson's resignation, he was kind of the guy that brought it to an end. But um, at least at that stage, but that the parties had a lot of conflict. One other thing I wanted to mention as well is um, there is this history in South Australia, and we might get into it a little bit more in the next episode. Labor won in twenty fourteen, even though the Liberal Party won a clear majority of the two party preferred vote. And basically one, because the state is distributed in such a way that, you know, Labor voters are distributed more evenly and it makes it harder for Liberals to win. And we've had this long history in South Australia of um, Labor often outperforming what the statewide vote suggests they should. And that resulted in having a change to the constitution that required redistributions to draw boundaries that would ensure the party that won the vote would win the election. Um, but uh, it kind of didn't really work. But we've talked about that in other episodes. But it does mean, in one sense, like Marshall was already the most popular person, like was on track, like the Liberal Party was the most popular party in South Australia in probably like 2011, 2012, you know. They they won a majority of the vote in 2014, two-party preferred vote, uh, and yet it took them so long to actually take power that I don't know if it's sort of, People got sick of them by then, or oh, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that didn't really have a factor in it, but it does sort of mean that they had this longer period of popularity, but they weren't able to actually govern during that time because Labor still had the majority. And there may be a bit of a sense of that um, sort of Churchill uh, syndrome as well. That if even if you know if if the government sort of banking on the the worst of the Omicron. Um, surge being over, um, which it does appear to be here um, for now, and certainly by the time South Australians cast their vote, 
they may be hoping to be rewarded for that, but it may be the opposite that people just sort of feel like, well, that was a that was an unpleasant period, and we might just expunge all memory of it, including the the guy who gave us the daily updates for all these months during the the Omicron surge. You know that, that you've won the war, but people don't, you know, are basically sick of the sight of you. So we, it'll be interesting to see if that's sort of a factor as well. Um, but yeah, you're right in terms of the sort of slightly odd. Um, redistribution um, mandate we have in South Australia. They have to do a, a boundaries review every four years. And for a very long time, I mean, just in the way the Act's phrased, that, that was done a certain way whereby they would give give um, precedence to or give weight to a certain part of the Act and, and um, the Liberals claimed that that meant that they would, would cost victory because they argued they should have been Basically, it should have been engineered that if you won the statewide vote that you should win enough seats. Um, it's it's an interesting and, and quite complex argument because Labor would argue that the, you know, a main reason they didn't win the statewide vote was because they didn't campaign at all in certain seats that they had no hope of winning. And that, by you know, by its very nature, drives down your statewide vote. They, they polled incredibly poorly in a lot of country areas. Interestingly, Peter Malinowskis spent a lot of those first two years in opposition going into all those areas just to sort of have a presence and and talk about the issues here. Now, they're not going to win those those sort of seats, but um, it did look like a, an attempt to kind of redress past wrongs in terms of neglecting vast areas of the, of the South Australian electorate. I'm sure he won't be visiting there in the days before the election. No, I wouldn't have thought. Tell me a little bit more about the, the new Labor leader, Peter Malinowskis. Yeah, so Peter, Peter Malinowskis was first uh, known in, in the public uh, mind, I guess, by um, becoming the head of the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, which is the, basically the shoppies union, about well, a decade or, or more ago, but at a very young age, um, off the top of my head, possibly even in his 20s, um, he was, you know, and that's and and the SDA is the union that basically is the the sort of cradle of the right faction in South Australia. It 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 effectively runs the Labor Party. So that to be running not just a union but the key union in Labor politics um, at a very young age um, really marked him out as a future high flyer in the Labor movement. That was sort of emphasised by the fact that he was one of two people. Um, the other being uh, the then, uh, I think he was the treasurer at the time, Jack Snelling, um, who tapped Mike Rann on the shoulder when it was time when the party had determined it was time for him to step aside in favour of Jay Wetherill. So here was this virtually unknown union leader who had a seat at the you know really most important table in um, state politics telling the elected premier that his time was up. So... He's, um, that was his first sort of um, rise to prominence, but it was always inevitable he would end up in, in Parliament. That came about in the end because one of the right faction appointees to the RAN cabinet, um, Bernard Finnegan, uh, had to step aside and leave the party after being arrested and charged with uh, attempting to procure child pornography-related um, offences. And uh, that eventually led to a casual vacancy in the upper house, which Peter Malinowskis filled in 2015. 
Um, so he basically came in at the tail end of Labor's 16 years in government, spent a little bit of time um, towards the end as the health minister, which the Marshall government is using, obviously, to hammer his record on health. Um, but they're also trying to hammer his uh, relative lack of experience when those two themes perhaps don't sit particularly well beside one another. Um, but I think it was always inevitable, really, after the election that he would be the um, leader in waiting. He wasn't sort of lumped with the long history of the Labor government's 16 years in power, had some experience, understood the factional system, um, and I think sort of came into the role with a, a fair bit of, um, you know, a fair bit of unity behind him and a fair bit of energy, but has been kept really anonymous over most of the last four years because uh, of, well, initially after 16 years, you can imagine the Liberal government had a, a reasonable honeymoon period where they were just um, uh, in, in the electorate's good graces having finally won a majority government and then the pandemic basically made life very difficult for oppositions everywhere and his approach to the to the coronavirus issue in contrast with some of the other oppositions around Australia has been to really um well at least on on, on face value not be a, a an overt critic of the government's approach um I think they understood looking at things like Victoria and, and Western Australia that that wasn't going to play well. It might keep them, you know, more relevant in the public eye, but it wasn't going to make them any friends or win them any votes. So it's meant that he's taken a back seat really politically over the last um, 24 months, but it also means that they haven't lost a lot of goodwill in the electorate. The seats that are going to really matter, the, the kind of battleground electorates, I have a guide on my website that includes an electoral map and Labor tends to dominate the northern suburbs of Adelaide and kind of the far south of Adelaide, I guess you'd say, while um, the Liberal Party, and Labor has a couple of seats outside that area, but the Liberal Party dominates most of the rural seats apart from a couple of independents and they have kind of the area immediately to the south of the city. But there's a few marginals. What are the seats that uh, you think are particularly of interest? Yeah, and just on that point about the country seats, and this was one of the, the Liberals' ongoing gripes really over those periods where they would win the statewide vote but lose the uh, the seat count sometimes quite decisively, that a lot of their votes were parked in safe seats, um, whereas Labor would tend to win the bulk of those metropolitan seats which were not quite marginal, but um, but not by an overwhelming margin. But interestingly, the way that it, the, the pendulum has landed after the last electoral boundaries distribution is that there are only four officially marginal seats um, that are held by the government. I mean, they're the only ones that we're taking a great deal of interest in because we're, I think now, um, assuming, looking at the polls, that the government isn't in the market to pick up seats from the Labor Party. They're going to be trying to adopt the strategy that was successful for Labor in 2010 and 2014 of just how can we stop those seats falling to the Labor side of the pendulum. And those seats are Adelaide, Elder, Newland and King is the other one, yeah, in the northeastern suburbs. So 
that's really the four seats where this election is playing out because Labor starts, well, they're officially on 19 seats. They need 24 to win a majority, but they will effectively be on 20 because their former member who became an independent, Francis Bedford, um, who won, re, you know, recontested and won her safe Labor seat of Flory, isn't contesting Flory this time. So it goes back to being a safe Labor seat. She's actually contesting neighbouring Newland after one of those boundary redistributions moved a chunk of her electorate into Newland. And that's the kind of thing that tends to happen quite a lot with these redistributions, which makes it, you know, it's a real headache for um well, MPs in general, but particularly for independent MPs who, you know, have a have a local following and then have their electorates cut in half. And Jeff Brock's in the same boat. He's having to contest Stewart instead of Frome because his Port Piri base has been moved into Stewart. Um, but Francis Bedford is contesting Newland, which makes that one a really interesting marginal seat because it's not just Labor versus Liberal, it's also a popular independent. Yeah, the other thing about Newland as well, I was checking my pendulum and you were saying four seats and I was like, I only see three on the coalition side. But part of what's happened is my calculations flipped Newland from Liberal to Labor. So it's actually listed at the top of the Labor side of the pendulum at 0.3% Labor, which I mean... This stuff is not that precise. So basically, it's a it's a dead heat. You know, it's within the statistical margin of error for redistributions. But um, that's that's a super like the Liberals basically don't have any room to spare in that seat, even before you factor in the the independent MP jumping in. Well, it's it's a super interesting seat, really, because the the Labor vote will be split. Um, you know, there'll be a, a big split there between Bedford and the, and the Labor Party. Um, and you've also got Family First contesting that seat, and it's and it really is sort of um, fertile uh, ground for Family First in those in those northern and northeastern sort of suburbs. Um, they've been revived, um, interestingly enough, by a couple of former Labor frontbenchers, including the aforementioned Jack Snelling, who went along with Peter Malinowskis to tell Mike Rand that his time was up. So they're from the the. Um, sort of uh, Catholic right of the Labor Party and have decided that both major parties uh, are failing their constituency and that they've, with the blessing of its founder, Andrew Evans, revived Family First and they'll be contesting Newland as well. Happens to be uh, um, Tom Kenyon, the other former frontbencher who's revived Family First. It's his former seat, which he lost at the last election. So... I imagine they'll be putting quite a lot of uh, groundwork into that and um, it will be really interesting to see the preference flows and how that ends up um, influencing the outcome. Really messy, interesting seat. Now, we've talked a bit about what the issues have been over the last four years, COVID and other stuff, but what are the issues, are there any particular issues that are popping up now that are dominating the early parts of the campaign? Look, it's really been health dominated, certainly as far as the opposition's um, tack has gone. We're more than a week into the campaign and they have gone out every single day with health policy announcements. The government is running more on its record. It's not making, besides its its city arena, which it announced more than a year ago, um, it's not sort of making big spending promises thus far. What it's doing is saying, look, we've got this, got low unemployment, we've got a, a strong, fast-growing economy. Um, 
so why would you want to go back to Labor? Um, so they're, the, I guess, the two themes that they've been hammering thus far. But whether the government changes tack after the, the latest news poll on um, Friday night, Saturday morning and, and thinks it needs to reevaluate the way it sells its message will be interesting, but we haven't seen a sign of that so far. There are some other interesting seats to watch, I guess. I mean, I think if, we, if a swing is on of the magnitude that was suggested in news poll and that's, you know, yet to be seen but um if there if there were then i guess some of those safer liberal seats that have reasonably high profile independents contesting might um become worth a look on election night you've also got and we talked about some of those cross benches who left the liberal party one of them sam Julock, who's in a reasonably safe liberal seat um, of white um and he, the, the story of how he came to, to leave the party is, is an intriguing one. He um, basically um, got up to some unfortunate hijinks at a Parliament House Christmas party, which led to him being charged with assault against another MP who, whom he allegedly slapped on the bottom. Um, that went through court and he was acquitted. Um, but he was not sort of welcomed back into the Liberal fold and instead um, eventually just said, look, I'm going to run as an independent. Um, you've got a member of his right faction running as the Liberal candidate against him, um, but you've also got the local Mitcham Lord Mayor running as an independent um, and Labor, I guess... You know, it's not a super safe Liberal seat, so Labor with a um, not particularly high but not negligible primary vote in that seat as well. So it's, you know, that's that's a seat that depending on the, the overall swing and depending on how preferences fall and depending on how much blowback um, Sam Dulak's going to get in his seat and whether people feel like he's been hard done by or not, not hard done by enough, uh, could go any number of ways. So that's another really interesting outcome to look out for. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Tom, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So my complete guide to the South Australian election is now live and free for all to view at www.tallyroom.com.au slash SA2022. And I'm sure you can follow all of Tom's reporting on the election at Indaily. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Mel for the glass of water and thanks to Christopher for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.